The four-story brownstone mansion in Murray Hill is no longer there. It's now an office building with a parking garage. But in the 1870s, it hosted some of the most influential people. Their hostess was Victoria Woodhull, a psychic from Ohio, turned stockbroker, turned presidential candidate. Welcome to Someone Lived Here, a podcast about the places cool people called home. I'm your host, Kendra Gaylord. This season, we're learning the stories of homes that are no longer standing, from the self-isolation of my apartment. Victoria Woodhall was 33 when she rented the Manhattan mansion at 15 East 38th Street. But she didn't live there alone. There was her younger sister and business partner, Tennessee Claflin, her second husband, her two children from her first marriage, her first husband, her parents, and her siblings, and their spouses, and their children. In a later court proceeding, Victoria would state that she supported 20 family members and 10 children in that house. We'll explain why she was at court later, but first, I want to describe this home. We don't have any photos of this house. It was demolished before 1940, when many New York City buildings were photographed. But we do know what it looked like. And this is a podcast, so you weren't going to see it anyway. It had a stone facade, but was built mostly of brick. A staircase led up to the big black walnut front door. It had 10-foot-tall windows and was four stories, taller than all the other buildings on the block. The parlor had windows that opened up to a balcony, supported by Corinthian columns. This property was rented off of her own income. Victoria started by advising the rich and powerful like Cornelius Vanderbilt. She got a cut of the profits and began making deals from her carriage outside of the gold exchange. From there, she and her sister, Tennessee, who went by Tenny, would open their office, Woodhull, Claflin, and Co., and were announced on the stock and gold exchange. Before she was a stock advisor, she was a spiritualist who claimed to communicate with the dead and see the future. It was an unusual ascent to fortune, but in the world of Wall Street at the time, it wasn't far off from the other stockbrokers who had previously been dairy salesmen and circus barkers. But the truly unusual thing was that they were women. And that was one of the reasons Victoria was on Wall Street in the first place. Victoria wanted to change the prospects for women, and she knew that the best way to do that was with money and press. Her main belief was seen as radical, called free love. And just as a reminder, we're still talking about the 1870s. Free lovers believe that marriage should result from mutual attraction instead of obligation, and that marriage laws endangered women as they were bound to sexual relationships with their husbands. And she had her own personal experience to see how marriage could be a prison. We're now going to go to the Ohio town where Victoria and Tenny grew up. Victoria's life in Manhattan and her life in Homer, Ohio couldn't be more different. She was the sixth of 10 children. They lived in a 25 foot long, unpainted, one story wooden shack. The town had less than 300 residents and one intersection. The Claflins had a reputation. Victoria's mother, Roxy, 
was extremely religious. Every night she would go to a nearby orchard and pray for the sins of the people of Homer. Victoria's father, on the other hand, was Buck. He was the local criminal, which included stealing money from people's mail, counterfeiting, and arson. That last one would be the reason Victoria and her family would have to leave town. She was 11, and her three years of elementary school education would be her last. In a new town in Ohio, Victoria, at age 14, and Tenny, age 7, became mediums. Victoria believed she could communicate with her dead sisters, and Tenny had predicted a fire. Their father, Buck, would charge $1 per visit. Buck wrote a short rhyme to Victoria. Girl, your worth has never yet been known, but to the world it shall be shown. It was in that town where Victoria met Canning Woodhull. He was 28 and establishing a medical practice. He had treated the 14-year-old for a fever and said he was the son of a judge and the nephew of the mayor of New York. The two were married five months later, and Victoria assumed she was beginning a new, more stable life. But that was not the case. They moved away from her family, and she found out her new husband was not in fact the son of a judge or the nephew of a mayor. He didn't have a functioning medical practice and was addicted to alcohol and morphine, and he often had affairs. At 16, Victoria had a son, Byron. As he got older, she noticed that he was intellectually disabled. He would never be able to speak, but would be by her side for the rest of her life. In San Francisco, Victoria became an actress and earned the sole income for the family. She said that when she was performing a scene, she had a vision of her sister, Tenny, telling her to come home. She packed her bags, and the family headed back to Ohio. In Victoria's years away, Tenny had been busy. She had been working for years as a medium, and often as a magnetic healer. The idea was that her hands could heal a person. Victoria was frustrated that her father had been exploiting her younger sister's gifts, but soon she was back at it too. Not only was she earning an income, but it also offered freedom from her gender. By being the conduit for a message, she was able to offer advice and opinions and guide people through hardship. Six years after the birth of her first child, she was pregnant again, but now she was 22, with family in her life. She had her daughter Zulu, who would later go by Zula. A few years later, Tenny, at age 19, would be charged with manslaughter. Their father, Buck, had renamed himself Dr. R.B. Claflin, calling himself the King of Cancers, and had opened an infirmary in a hotel in Illinois. There, Tenny was expected to heal patients with cancer. When one patient died, Tenny was charged. The family fled. Victoria would take Tenny, along with her children and husband, to Cincinnati, where the two would open shop as clairvoyants, like they had when they were kids. But they were no longer perceived as kids. Neighbors assumed any male client was not there to talk with the spirits. A year later, the city asked the women to leave. Tenny was named in a civil suit for adultery. The sisters moved from city to city and met up with the rest of their family 
who were touring Tennessee and Arkansas. The Civil War had just ended, and people were looking for comfort and cures. Victoria would communicate with dead spirits and solve domestic problems. What Victoria found when talking to women was the extreme hardship from their marriages. Abuse, rape, abandonment, and financial ruin. After, Victoria would land in St. Louis, where she again would set up a practice. There, she met Colonel James Blood. He was a commander in the Union Army and came to her for spiritual consult. While he was there, in a trance, she announced that his future would be linked with hers and that they would be married. He immediately proposed, despite both of them already being married. Their divorces were later finalized. She was 26, and he was 29. I try not to comment on people's names, but Colonel Blood is a very good name. It sounds like it belongs in a gory version of Clue. Anyway, Colonel Blood, unlike her first husband, was ambitious and intellectual. Victoria had found her belief system based on her life experience, but now she was able to learn about the pre-existing movements, women's rights and social equality. In the teaching she studied, marriage was supposed to be a union of equals, and in meeting Colonel Blood, she had met hers. Many decisions made by Victoria were the results of her visions, like the one that she had when she was an actress to rejoin her family. Now she had another vision. An ancient Greek statesman gave her an address in New York where she would, quote, find a house swept and garnished for the commencement of the work she had to do. That address was 17 Great Jones Street. The building is no longer there. It was taken down to make Lafayette Street connect down to Lower Manhattan. There she was joined by her parents, along with Tenny and her other sisters and their families. Their father, Buck, set out to find them work. And the person he found was Cornelius Vanderbilt. He was 73, had recently lost his wife, and not long after, had a big business loss, thanks to Jay Gould. You may remember him from last season, when we bowled at his Lyndhurst estate. Vanderbilt believed in spiritualism, and Buck recommended his daughters, saying that Tenny would heal his physical ailments, and Victoria would be his spiritual advisor. After he met the sisters, he agreed. The Vanderbilt family worried he would marry Tenny, who he brought everywhere and called my little sparrow. Victoria, on the other hand, became more than a spiritual advisor, but instead a financial one. Predicting trends and recommending when to buy and sell, he in turn gave her a percentage, as well as stock tips. When asked how he made such good financial decisions, Vanderbilt responded, Do as I do. Consult the spirits. I now want to bring you back to Victoria Woodhull's East 38th Street mansion in Murray Hill. When I describe it now, you'll understand why this time period was called the Gilded Age. The walls were lined with marble, the ceilings painted gold, the curtains were velvet, there were chandeliers, carpets, and mirrors everywhere. In the mahogany-paneled library, there were even mirrors on the ceiling. Off of the main parlor was a greenhouse filled with birds. At the top of the grand staircase was a large painted dome 
a reporter would write. A flood of light beaming through a circular sheet of glass, painted in the most exquisite colors, depicting the loves of Venus in delicate lines. Further upstairs were the sisters' separate rooms. Tenny's was filled with purple velvet and lilac-patterned silk. Victoria's walls were lined with green velvet, with a matching bedspread and gilded chairs. Victoria now had the money and the press, but it wasn't politically focused. So a paper was started, called Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. Victoria assumed the role of publisher and her husband the editorial chair. This paper would elevate their philosophies on free love, equality, and labor unions, but it would also lead to Victoria's future arrest. But before we get there, I want to tell you about the day that Victoria Woodhull was the first woman to address a congressional committee. It was a surprise to the women's suffrage leaders when they read it in the paper, but they attended. In total, eight lawmakers were there, but the press account was detailed, and one report especially focused on their clothing. This is from the Press of Philadelphia. At the head of the class was Mrs. Beecher Hooker, her soft fleecy curls tied down in orthodox precision, the curling feathers of blue harmonizing with her peachy complexion. Susan B. Anthony snuggled close beside her, clad in a smart new dress of black silk with velveteen overskirt and fancy basque. The firm of Woodhull and Claflin are clad precisely alike and call each other sister. Their costumes consist of a business suit, because they are strictly business. These costumes are made of blue naval cloth, skimp in the skirt. The jacket has masculine coattails behind, but the steeple-crowned hats are the towering triumph of this most picturesque outfit. So what I would argue was the towering triumph was Victoria's speech. She argued that the Constitution already stated that women had the right to vote. The 15th Amendment declared that the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged. And in the 14th Amendment, it said that all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction are citizens. To Victoria and Massachusetts Representative Benjamin Butler, it seemed clear that this would include women. After her speech, the suffragists saw her as a shining possibility. She joined the National Committee of Women and contributed $10,000. She continued on in Washington, and when Congress refused to give her a public meeting with the House of Representatives, she instead went to Lincoln Hall. There she had a large audience. She said, It is not the women who are happily situated whose husbands hold positions of honor and trust, who are blessed by the bestowal of wealth, comforts, and ease that I plead for, but for the toiling female millions who have human rights which should be respected. This was a direct hit to a petition signed by the wives of politicians and prominent businessmen who said they represented the majority of women in the country. In the closing of her speech, she said, If Congress refuse to listen to and grant what women ask, there is but one course left to pursue. We are plotting a revolution. We will overslow this bogus republic and plant a government of righteousness in its stead. Victoria would return to New York, 
and more articles would be written about the woman who suggested a revolution. Gossip and stories of her past began to unravel. Elizabeth Cady Stanton responded, In regard to the gossip about Mrs. Woodhull, I have one answer to give all my gentlemen friends. When the men who make laws for us in Washington can stand forth and declare themselves pure and unspotted from all sins, then we will demand that every woman who makes a constitutional argument on our platform shall be as chaste as Diana. We have had women enough sacrificed to this sentimental, hypocritical pratting about purity. This is one of man's most effective engines for our division and subjugation. He creates the public sentiment, builds the gallows, and then makes us hangmen for our sex. If Victoria Woodhull must be crucified, let men drive the spikes. In very little time, Victoria would be in the midst of many scandals. Her first court appearance was because of her mother, who accused Colonel Blood of trying to kill her. The inciting incident seemed to revolve less around Victoria's husband, but instead the lack of sway she had in her daughter's lives. Nothing came of the trial, but a lot of information was publicly revealed, including the details of her living situation. She lived with Colonel Blood and her ex-husband. In reality, Victoria appeared to welcome all of her family into her home, and her morphine-addicted ex-husband and father of her children was family. The next scandal is messy and confusing and revolves around three siblings, but they weren't her own. Catherine Beecher, Harriet Beecher Stowe, and the youngest brother, Reverend Henry Ward Beecher. He was a famous preacher. Victoria had heard that the Reverend was known to have affairs. When she and the eldest sister would later meet, Victoria would speak of free love, suggesting it was more common. She brought up the Reverend's rumored affair with his parishioner. Victoria would later say that Catherine left her with a threat. Remember, Victoria Woodhull, that I shall strike you dead. The parishioner the reverend had an affair with was Elizabeth Tilton. She was married to Theodore Tilton. After his wife told him of the affair with a man he'd seen as a friend, his philosophy on religion changed, and his work began to fall apart. Victoria and Theodore became allies and would write positive stories about each other in their papers. They also began an affair, and over a summer he would write her biography as she recounted her past. When it was published, his reputation was damaged. One paper wrote a fake obituary, saying he'd been replaced with a pseudo-Tilton. But there were other, more positive things at play. An unknown group announced their nomination of Victoria Woodhull for president, under the Equal Rights Party. There were rumors that the group had Vanderbilt's backing. Victoria would accept the nomination. Frederick Douglass was nominated for VP, He did not acknowledge the nomination. Her opposition grew strong, but so did her opinions. At Steinway Hall, she gave a two-hour speech, which discussed women's rights. When republished, many words were removed, including pregnancy, rape, and abortion. Money was not coming in as it used to, and her reputation was getting worse. Her daughter could no longer go to private school, because the other parents objected to Victoria. The family had to leave their home, and hotels would not accept her. 
She was running out of options. She saw the success of Theodore Tilton as he rolled back his opinions on free love. She saw Henry Ward Beecher had escaped criticism. So she went to Boston, got an audience, and told the entire Beecher and Tilton affair. She would later say, They tell me I used some naughty words upon that occasion. All that I know is that if I swore, I did not swear profanely. Her paper, which had gone out of business, published again, telling the story with more details and calling out the hypocrisy. Four days after its publication, there was a warrant out for Victoria's arrest. Anthony Comstock opposed obscene literature and dedicated his life to upholding his morality. After reading the paper, he first brought it to New York courts, who refused his application for an arrest warrant. Next, he went to the federal courts, who had recently passed a law making it illegal to send obscene material through the mail. The paper was mailed to some subscribers. The words that counted as obscene were token and virginity. Victoria and Tenney were arrested. After four weeks, they were released with bail of $8,000 each, but were brought back for trials and then arrested again, each time with a higher bail. In total, they would pay over $60,000 each. The constant battle with the courts was heavily reported, and although people didn't like Victoria, they sympathized. Money was tight, and despite being sick, Victoria began a lecture tour, always returning to New York to be in court. A year and a half later, a jury would reach the verdict of not guilty. But there were other civil cases against her. Once they had concluded, at the age of 37, Victoria would divorce Colonel Blood. She and Tenny and her children would move to London. After a lecture, Victoria met John Martin, an heir of Britain's oldest bank. He was a few years younger, and their courtship was slow, often interrupted by new parts to the Beecher scandal or concern and doubt from John's family. But after much back and forth, the two were married on Halloween. He was 42, and she was 45, although on the marriage certificate, her age was crossed out, and 42 was written. Victoria now found herself in a marriage where she was not responsible for the family's income. She lived a much more quiet life than she ever had before. She and John would exchange love notes before he went to his office down the street. After 13 years of marriage, John would die while traveling. His death was just preceded by his father's, which meant that Victoria was bequeathed a family property, Norton Park. The Yellowstone Tudor-style mansion with high gables is still standing. It was here where she would spend the next 30 years, with her son and daughter by her side. Victoria died in her sleep at the age of 88. She wanted to be remembered by a line from Kant, You cannot understand a man's work by what he has accomplished, but by what he has overcome in accomplishing it. She had spent her 30s campaigning in the United States for women's right to vote. She was 81 when the 19th Amendment was ratified. Thank you for listening to Someone Lived Here. The book Notorious Victoria and Other Powers were both used to research this episode. You can find links to those books on our website. Thanks to Tim Cahill for our music. 
If you haven't yet, check out our Patreon, where every level gets a sticker in the mail, with a note from me. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook for updates, and leave a review and tell others if you like the show. Thanks for listening.